Everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. Last episode was fun. I liked doing the interviews with everyone at PAX. Yeah, that was fun. And if you are listening to this after listening to that episode and you were interviewed and you want to talk more with us, send us an email. If we mentioned you and we didn't interview you and you want to be interviewed by us, send us an email. And finally, if you want to just chat, send us an email. Anyway, no notes from the producer so we can just get on into this episode uh so recently i'm gonna go first because sure. uh i have recently been playing caesar 3 developed by impressions games and released in 1998 but what ho let me tell you something about caesar 3 i've been playing it on my phone in my endless quest to find a decent mobile game i was able to use my copy of caesar 3 from gog and an app called julius and i'm able to play a mobile version of caesar 3 on my phone so julius is actually it's like one of those open games you know like war 2 play for warcraft 2 or whatever that's called julius is like that except uh for caesar 3 oh fun you can use julius on your computer as well there is also an app called augustus which takes improvements from more modern games since zeus and pharaoh came out after caesar 3 it takes some of the enhancements from those games and interlaces them into caesar 3 and it also has a widescreen fix so if you want to play on your computer i would also recommend getting the augustus version i haven't used the augustus i use the julius one because that one's on the phone and that's where i play caesar 3 julius is a great app because it modifies the game so that you can play it on mobile and it's like pretty fluid you have like a real-time pause which you don't have in the regular game there's actually no pause button you can just slow game speed down to an extremely slow pace so there's a real-time pause there's a pause that you can use and you can kind of think about what you're doing and be able to make sure that you're building correctly without blowing up your city and that's a great feature it also just gives you really good touch controls and i love it I was I was playing it like every moment for a period of time. And I just love having the ability to bring my little Roman city around in my pocket. My uh, Roman city has a lot of farms and fruit vendors, but the pathing in Caesar is silly. So my I just have uh, countless engineers and prefectures, which are the people that put out fires spread throughout the city. And I send everything off to Caesar. It's great. I'm trying to get a bunch of different metrics for it. If you're interested in playing this impression, city builder on your phone you can google the julius app and it's a pretty simple setup that i had up and running in my hotel room in pax in about 15 minutes or so so have at and uh, i guarantee you if you search hard enough you can probably find the caesar 3 game complete somewhere out there like gog uh, they have yes like gog zach what have you been recently playing seth i've been playing the murder of sonic the hedgehog oh what happened to him well that's what you're trying to figure out the murder of sonic the hedgehog was released on march 31st 2023 and developed by sega social team and published for windows and mac os as a free game the game is set aboard a train where you play as a newly hired crew member that you can name whatever you want i named my crew member dingus and you soon meet sonic the hedgehog and his gang of friends amy rose tails knuckles espio rouge blaze vector and shadow and they're on the train to celebrate amy's birthday by doing 
a murder mystery. Suddenly, the lights go out, and when they turn back on, Sonic is dead. Oh, no. And yeah, it's now up to you, along with Tails and Amy, to figure out who murdered Sonic the Hedgehog. And it's a, so far, pretty fun game. It's actually a point-and-click style visual novel, and uh, what you do is you find clues that have been scattered around in the particular area that you're in, and then you go and interrogate someone by presenting the clues to them. And the way you do the interrogations is kind of neat. So, one of the first things you have to do is, after the train has its issue, your character wakes up with Amy and Tails in a staff room on the train and the door's blocked and you have to figure out how to get the door open. So you ask Amy, you're like, Amy, you've got a hammer that you can use to break this block. Could you, can you get it out? And she's like, ah, I don't, I don't have the hammer with me. I can't help you. And then you like find a broken stick that looks suspiciously like the hammer's handle. And also the thing blocking the door already has a big chunk missing out of it. So you confront Amy with this evidence and you're like, Amy, it looks like you already attempted to get out and she's like yes and i broke my hammer and i felt embarrassed about it so then you're like that's fine and you fix the hammer and then she gets everyone out when you confront her with the evidence initially she'll be like i don't see how that relates to what's going on so then you have to think about it and to think about it your character uses a mini game that is implied to be going on in their head where sonic is going through an auto running sequence of collecting rings and if you collect enough rings then you figure out how you can confront people with the evidence and it's your brainstorming session so it does have little mini games that you can play but yeah uh, overall it's it's just kind of a goofy game it was released for april fool's day as it was released on march 31st so you can kind of tell what they were going for but the fact that it's like a free-to-play game and is pretty well done with really nice art and stuff like that i think is a pretty cool thing uh, it should be still available on steam unless sega has decided to delist it for some reason so be sure to check out the murder of sonic the hedgehog all right for today's episode we're not talking about murder we're talking about about a game company that developed a very successful game. That game company is Bungie, and that successful game is Halo Combat Evolved. Nice. I love Halo Combat Evolved. Do you have any memories of Halo? I do have memories because you may or may not remember, but I was a professional Halo player back in the esports days. I competed professionally for a clan on Clan Wars. Did you do well? There was a time where our team was placed first in the ladder of all the other hundreds of teams because we were the first team of the month to post up. We posted the first win, and thus we were first. Uh, I was, in fact, so good that um, we had people ring for me. Do you know what ringing is? Why don't you explain for the folks at home? Yeah, so ringing is the practice of when uh, you play in an online game where the only thing that people know you is your handle, and somebody who is better at the game plays as you with your handle. So they rang for me because I was extremely good at the game. Uh, So good, in fact, that my team didn't want me to compete. Wow. In fact, my jobs at the game were uh, marketing and PR. Uh, I was in (laughs) charge of putting together the uh, website for our clan. You used to do machinima for it, didn't you? I did do machinima for it. Yeah, I did the intro video for our clan where I tailored individual theme songs for everybody doing cool things. And I wish I could find the video. Is that out there still? I hope. What was the clan called? uh, Hell Satan. Hell Satan? (laughs) Yeah, HS. I was not in charge of the naming. Our tag was HS. And I was uh, Simmons because I loved Simmons from Red vs. Blue. And I always felt an attachment 
to Simmons. Uh, so I was H.S. Simmons. And so sometimes I was H.S. Simmons and sometimes somebody else was. <laughs> the part of the, the video that I loved the most of my machinima was my uh, my part, my where I was, um, I played uh, What Was Left of the Flag by Flagging Molly. And my section was me getting exploded by a sticky grenade and flying through to the camera. Nice. So everyone else had cool, cool shots where they were shooting sniper rifles or jumping out of warthogs. And then there was me getting blown up. And it was great. I really think I liked making the machinima more than I liked participating in actual clan matches. And my team also liked when I didn't participate in actual clan matches because I was allowed to. They just preferred I didn't, which was fine. Which is why they rang for you so many times. That's right. We had some guys. I don't even know where they came from. So the clan was formed by kids in my high school. There was like five of us or something like that. That and we were all high school friends. Then we met other people through clan wars, and we found guys who were really good at the game. Who then would come in, and that's where we found our ringers. So like we found other people in clan wars who wanted to help us because it benefited them to like make us have us be a better team and like win against certain matches because then they could like ladder us up against they could control the ladder essentially it was very political for being in high school it was it was an intense moment we never got any sponsorships because uh esports weren't really that big at the time uh, yeah. but if they were i guarantee you this was uh if it was 2023 game fuel oh or man i would be game fuel sponsor people would love me i'd have like a twitch you'd have the like stacks of g fuel yeah, I would. And all your I profile would. pictures. I was like, I, I think I was like five years too early. But yeah, so those are my memories of Halo. And beyond the game being fun, the guys that I hang out with were all big Halo fans. I didn't play a lot of Halo online, but I played a lot of the multiplayer at my friend's house because he had an Xbox. So we would play Halo and then Halo 2 for a while. And then later on, when he got the 360, we played Halo 3. <laughs> and I liked it. I liked playing Halo. I thought it was fun. Uh, I mean, we mostly just did like capture the flag and stuff together. I think we played a bit online. No. No, we just did we just did like two player multiplayer, three player multiplayer with different people. We always had a blast. But uh getting into the history, it's important to talk about Bungie as a company. Bungie being the company that would go on to create Halo. Bungie Incorporated got their start in the 1990s when Alex Serapian was at the University of Chicago. After graduation, Alex moved back home. And while at home, his family recommended strongly that he find a job. So Alex did the next best thing. He started his own company. From his parents' garage initially, Alex created created a clone of Pong called Gnop and released it as a freeware game for the Macintosh. And for those of you at home, Gnop is spelled G-N-O-P, which is Pong spelled backwards. Despite it being a free game, he still made a little bit of money as he sold the source code for the game for $15. So anyone who wanted the source code could just reach out and he would sell it to them directly for $15 a pop. When the game was released, it was credited as being created by Bungie Software. But at the time, the company wasn't officially incorporated. It was just a name that he used to refer to him. In 1991, Alex officially incorporated Bungie Software Products Corporation to publish his next game, Operation Desert Storm. To raise money to publish the game, Alex had to borrow from his friends and family, and he ended up writing each disc of the game himself when he was publishing the game and selling it. And he ended up selling about 2,500 copies. So that means Alex had to individually create 2,500 500 discs to mail out to people. Not an efficient business model, but it worked. Now, Operation Desert Storm was a top-down 
tank shooter, not too different arguably from combat for the Atari 2600. The game was based on the actual Operation Desert Storm, which was at the time an ongoing conflict in the Middle East. And the game featured 20 levels, with the last level being Baghdad and the boss being a giant floating head of Saddam Hussein. That is a time capsule of a game if, if I've ever heard of one. Yeah, for sure. While at the University of Chicago, Alex had actually met another programmer that he shared a class with, Jason Jones. Jason was familiar with programming for the Macintosh, having worked on porting a game called Minotaur that he created from the Apple II to the Macintosh. Alex and Jason weren't actually friends. Uh, apparently, Jason used to think that Alex hated him uh, because Jason had the nicer computer. <laughs> so he just assumed that Alex was like, I don't like this guy. But they would end up partnering together and uh, Jason and Alex would go on to release Minotaur the Labyrinths of Crete in 1992. Minotaur was a role-playing adventure game that actually featured multiplayer that could function over Apple Talk or point-to-point -point protocol, which was a, an old networking protocol at the time. The game did fairly well, but was criticized for a lack of mouse control and a lack of solid single player. So despite the fact that it had a pretty robust multiplayer for the time, there wasn't really much single player, which people were a bit more interested in, because not a lot of people gamed online in the 1990s. Also, it lacked mouse control, which was important for a Macintosh game, which is primary selling function was the fact that it came with a mouse. As you may have guessed by the fact that their first three games were all Macintosh games, the company was focused on providing games for that system. And this was pretty much just due to the fact that there were very few games for the Macintosh. The market was incredibly ripe for games to be published because if you were publishing a game for a Macintosh, it was most likely that a person who owned a Macintosh would buy your game because there were like only a handful of games available. Then their next game, Pathways into Darkness, which was their first FPS. It was Bungie's answer to Wolfenstein 3D, which was dominating the DOS gaming community. Their game was an FPS where you would play as a special forces soldier who must stop a godlike monster from being awakened. This game would be Bungie's first major success, selling more than 20,000 copies. And by 1994, it was the third best-selling Macintosh game, being just behind Myst and SimCity 2000. The success of selling more than 20,000 copies not only helped establish the Bungie's name a bit more firmly in the gaming market, but also gave them enough money to move to a proper office space. The team, which consisted of Alex and Jason, would move from Alex's one-bedroom apartment to a studio in south side of Chicago. Uh, they also would hire their first employee, Doug Zartman, who came on to provide support for Pathways into Darkness, but was later moved into the position of public relations. Sounds like me for when I was working for Hell Satan. According to another employee, their studio was located next to a crack den and often smelled like a frat house after a really long weekend. Sounds like a great part of Chicago. A sequel to Pathways into Darkness started to begin development. However, they would shift the sequel and just make it a new game called Marathon. Marathon was a science fiction themed first person shooter that sold incredibly well on release. The game ended up being another success and would sell just below 200,000 units in its lifetime. And Bungie was like, hey, this first person shooter thing, this works. Now, they showed the game originally at Macworld Expo and immediately had orders filled. As the game was still in development and was not finished until December 14th, Jason would end up spending an entire day assembling 
filling boxes in the warehouse with some other employees in order to make the deadline of getting the game out before Christmas. Now, Marathon did so well, it would become Macintosh's killer app. The reason to own a Macintosh could be to play Marathon, often being likened to Doom, which was only available on PC. You get a PC to play Doom, you get a Macintosh, you play Marathon. Uh, Now, the game scored very well across various gaming magazines and even wound up on 2012's 100 Best Video Games Ever Released by... Time Magazine, who are, as we all know, the gold standard in video game reviews. Very true. Now, with success came sequels, and Marathon 2 Durandal came out in 1995. Bungie would announce at this time that Marathon 2 would be ported to Windows 95 in order to expand their market and partner with larger companies to increase supply chain demands. This, however, left Mac users feeling betrayed, and Bungie would begin receiving tons of hate mail. It makes sense, though, right? If you are one of the few companies releasing games for the Macintosh and suddenly you are doing very very well you're going to need much more ways to get your game out there which it increases your supply chain needs and a lot of companies weren't helping Macintosh developers because the Macintosh wasn't a really popular system. So it it makes logical sense that they would begin thinking of porting their games over to Windows. And at the same time, I can see where Mac users felt betrayed because if you were so used to not having things and suddenly you have something great that everyone else doesn't have, and then you're told that they're going to have it too, I would feel kind of betrayed too. I can see where both situations are coming from, where Bungie needed to make some changes and why their fan base felt sad. But they would eventually release Marathon 2, and it would eventually be ported to Windows. And a third game, Marathon Infinity, would also be released in 1996. It would round off the Marathon trilogy. Now, we briefly talked about Marathon way back when we talked about the Apple Pippin, as it was one of the few games released on the Apple Pippin. And you know what? That is something to write home about. Now, their next game, Myth the Fallen Lords, was a departure from first-person shooters. It was a strategy game that focused on tactical unit management. The game, like Bungie's other titles, did very well upon release. It was released in 1997 and would ultimately sell around 350,000 copies worldwide and become a critical success, winning a variety of awards like Strategy Game of the Year from Computer Gaming World and Real-Time Strategy Game of the Year from from PC Gamer, and they even made a sequel called Myth 2. In 1999, Bungie's next game would be announced. Originally intended to be a third-person shooter developed for the Macintosh, their next game was unveiled at Macworld Expo 1999 by Steve Jobs himself. This game was Halo. Shortly after the Expo, in 2000, it was announced that Microsoft had acquired Bungie, and Bungie would become part of the Microsoft game division. And Halo was no longer going to be a Macintosh game. It was going to be an exclusive game for Microsoft's Xbox, their brand new console that was getting close to release. Halo Combat Evolved was originally conceived as a follow-up to the Marathon games, and plans for it went back as far as 1995 when they were looking to develop a game as their answer to Quake. The team wanted the game to feature vehicular combat such as tanks and internally called it the Giant Bloody War Game. Due to issues they had with the physics model, the game had to be put on hold and development shifted to Myth. Now, prior to the acquisition from Microsoft, Bungie was facing some financial problems. Myth 2 Soulblighter 
was facing a recall due to a glitch that would wipe the contents of the directory it was installed to. Around 200,000 copies of the games were discovered to have this glitch, and that would cost the company around $800,000 to remedy. Because that's a great surprise that you would, would get. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure those are fun phone calls to take for the uh, Bungie support team. Ed Fries, the head of Microsoft Game Studios and missing the opportunity to be a fast food entrepreneur, was contacted by Bungie to discuss acquisition and the company was formally required in 2000. Now, Bungie put together their idea for this new game and shift development over to the Xbox. They also had to get this done within a year as the Xbox was due to be launched in 2001 and Microsoft really wanted Bungie to put out a FPS game for the Xbox. Microsoft wanted Halo on the Xbox. The Xbox was due to be launched in 2001. Bungie had to scramble. Bungie would cancel all of their other projects and all their team would focus on the development of Halo, which consisted of putting together various assets, changing the game from third person to first person, making the game work with the Xbox's controller, developing multiplayer, scrapping multiplayer, rebuilding multiplayer completely from scratch. Reportedly, team members would sleep at their desks in order to to make deadlines. Talk about crunch. Halo Combat Evolved is, like a lot of Bungie games, a science fiction first-person shooter, this time set in the 26th century. Faster than light travel has been created and has allowed humans to colonize other planets. The United Nations Space Command, or UNSC, um, which is a human military faction, has gone on to create a secret program of augmented super soldiers they call the Spartans. You play as one of these Spartans, Master Chief Petty Officer John 117, or simply known as... Master Chief. Chief is tasked with stopping the Covenant, an alien race that the UNSC has been at war with for ages, and specifically stop them from discovering the location of Earth, um, because the Covenant is reportedly planning to use a super weapon to destroy it. This super weapon is believed to be the Ringworld Halo. So, you are on Halo, and you are trying to stop the Covenant. Uh, you also encounter another alien race called the Flood, which is this nasty parasitic race that is bad. They pretty much kill everything in their path, uh, and they do not discriminate between Covenant or humans. You soon learn, through various research and finding items and talking to people, that there is more to Halo than meets the eye. Now, the music in the game, which is amazing, uh, was composed by Martin O'Donnell, um, who decided to incorporate Gregorian chants, and you'll get to hear a little bit of that if you listen to the beginning of this episode. Now, how did Halo perform? Well, as we all know, Halo was a disappointment, sold under expected, and nobody liked it. They killed the franchise immediately. Just kidding. Halo Combat Evolved was a smash hit. During the first two months of release, the game sold alongside more than 50% of the Xbox consoles, but not as a pack-in. No. <laughs> so. Yeah, if you bought an Xbox, you had to choose to buy Halo. But 50% of people who bought an Xbox bought Halo. Which is great. Yeah. And 1 million units were sold within five months. 3 million sold by 2003. And in total, the Xbox version would go on to sell 4 0.2 million by 2006 and they put it out on PC which is where I competed professionally and that version would go on to sell 670,000 copies one of which was mine <laughs> that's a pretty nice thing like you're in there <laughs> yeah you know what if I didn't buy the game they would have reported 669,999 sales. I got them to the even 670,000. Look at you. Good for you. I know. I I did what I could, Bungie. Now, the game was praised for not just for the gameplay itself, but also the multiplayer, which was, one reviewer said, GoldenEye was the standard for multiplayer console combat. It has been 
surpassed. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I, I 100% that, agree. I, I, I would agree as well that there was a period of time where Halo was the dominant first-person shooter. I do believe that it is probably no longer the case. Oh, no, no, but... Um, I but think it's not the standard for multiplayer combat anymore. Yeah, but I think when getting into the legacy, you see that Halo it really is responsible for modernizing the entire first-person shooter genre to what we know of today. Because if you look at the history of first-person shooters, you have like Kalbaleth, which is like one of the earliest, which was a dungeon crawler, and then you get into like Wolfenstein, which was kind of a progression of dungeon crawlers, and Doom is a progression of Wolfenstein, and Quake is a progression of Doom, and Half-Life is a progression of quake but then halo is something entirely different right like halo is taking all of those tropes that we understood about first person shooters before and just tossing them out the window and being like this is new this is what we're doing um and, and really it's just in terms of the the, the fast-paced gameplay the way the story plays in the, in the single player and just the way the multiplayer is so snappy and good uh you got your vehicles that you can jump in whatever you want you have the sound effects that are always immersing you in the gameplay like that the shield sound whenever you get pinged by a um, sniper bolt it's like <laughs> It's, it's just it really changed the game for what we know of as both first person shooters but also multiplayer shooters halo not only saw ports to windows and mac os but it also spawned an entire franchise which consists of various sequels such as halo 2 halo 3 halo 3 odst halo reach which was a prequel halo 4 halo 5 guardians and halo infinite and there were also spin-offs such as halo wars and Halo Wars 2, which are real-time strategy games, and an Atari 2060 make was made by Ed Fries and sold as a cartridge on Atari Age. Halo also had a major impact in the genre of machinima. I mean, as Seth mentioned, he used to make Halo Machinima, but specifically with a little series called Red vs. Blue, which was initially set in the Blood Gulch multiplayer map, and was really successful not just because of the writing, but because of a glitch in Halo multiplayer that made your characters look like they were, like, relaxing, where their guns would just be, like, down by their side. Like, they'd still be holding them, but they wouldn't be holding them upward, like, pointing. They would just be kind of, like, holding them kind of nonchalantly, which was legitimately just a glitch in the game that they were able to exploit for red versus blue to make these characters look like they were relaxing and chatting with each other red versus blue has some jokes in it that don't really hold up i think today kind of some stuff that's no longer politically correct or wasn't politically correct but that first episode just the why are we here still i think to me is solid comedy it literally just two characters one character having an existential crisis and the other character being like no i mean literally why are we physically here hey you ever wonder why we're here? It's one of life's great mysteries, isn't it? Why are we here? I mean, are we the product of some cosmic coincidence, or is there really a God watching everything, you know, with a plan for us and stuff? I don't know, man, but it keeps me up at night. What? I mean, why are we out here, in this canyon? Oh, 
red versus blue was such an important thing for me in the moment because i you know like i watched red versus blue from the very first episode it was kind of like order of the stick the comic yeah i i started reading order of the stick and red versus blue right around the same time and i read them and watched them both about for the same length of time and it was decidedly like when i was in college that was like my undergrads like that was my college life was red versus blue and order of the stick comic and just reading those watching those drinking coffee i had a dvd of red versus blue stuff like they oh, when yeah. they put out when they put out one of their miniseries a bit later i picked up that dvd because i thought it was great rooster teeth did a great job with red versus blue rooster teeth wouldn't be rooster teeth today if it wasn't for red versus blue like we wouldn't we wouldn't have ruby we wouldn't have any like achievement hunters we wouldn't have any of that if it wasn't for red versus blue like i've always been simmons hs simmons but yeah, yeah. i've always been i've always been simmons who is the one of the protagonists in red versus blue he's a very sardonic cynical person and i've always felt a line with him if you had to be anybody who would you be and why Caboose. is it donut Oh, oh okay. <laughs> also, donut. I love donut. It's not pink. It's lightish red. My armor's maroon. Your armor is red. One of my favorite caboose lines. So they introduce the freelancers, but they all have state names. So there's oh, yes. Tex and Wyoming, and someone yells like Tex, and someone else yells Wyoming, and then Caboose is like Connecticut, <laughs> and then he's like, I thought we we're just naming states. I actually feel like I I should watch the. Like, I, I might red like versus... legitimately just watch all of the like first season of Red versus Blue again. They have like like hour-long compilations of just the first season they're like two minute long episodes the original ones they're pretty short yeah you can watch like the entire season in one hour not even now outside of red versus blue there's also been various official halo related things uh there's been various novels there were graphic novels comics a live action web series to tie into halo 4 a series of short animated films that was put out called uh halo legends and also pretty mediocre tv show that came out on paramount plus i watched the first two episodes of paramount plus halo i thought it was not good but i've also heard people say that they liked it i don't know it just i didn't like it i thought it was kind of uh pretty much just generic sci-fi with a halo coat of paint and uh master chief takes off his helmet a bit too much for my liking almost like book of boba fett took off his helmet way too much way too much now the halo ip is no longer owned by bungie uh, back in 2007, Bungie split from Microsoft, and with that split, Halo remained with Microsoft. Um, so what Microsoft ended up doing was they created a subsidiary called 343 Industries, which is a game developer owned by Microsoft, but that currently creates Halo games. And they started with Halo 4 and have been producing Halo games since. Um, so if you need to blame modern Halo's problems on something, blame it on 343. Don't blame Bungie. But you can blame Bungie for Destiny. <laughs> At least Destiny 1. Destiny 2 was pretty good. I like Destiny 2. And uh, with that, that's that's Bungie and Halo. Uh, and we could probably spend more time talking about the lore of Halo. And maybe we will do that. Maybe we'll talk about the lore of Halo because I think there is some cool things with the way the Spartans are, the way the AI works with the Spartans. All Spartans have AIs that they can communicate with, Master Chiefs being Cortana. Uh, but then there's also just like the, the way the Covenant is kind of this like evil presence that also like there's kind of more to it than just being evil. It kind of gives me a Starship Trooper vibes with the like the bugs uh you kind of get a vibe that like the unsc's war with the covenant isn't quite what they're telling you about so maybe we can do a, a whole lore episode on halo someday so with with that being over we're gonna get on to our <laughs> we're gonna talk go on to our retro rewind and we're gonna talk about games that zach assigned me 
and I assigned him. So I'm going to go first again because I'm the oldest. Zach assigned me Dungeons and Dragons Warriors of the Eternal Sun, released in 1992 by Westwood Associates and published by uh, Sega. Uh, it is a roleplay game that was developed for the Sega, uh, specifically the Sega Genesis. Now, this game takes place in a, the fantasy world of Dungeons and Dragons and specifically uses campaign setting elements of Hollow Earth, which is a, a sub campaign specifically. It's a subdomain in the Mysteria campaign setting. Anyway, it just uses the enemies from it. It doesn't, I don't think it necessarily uses the plot from it. However, you are in, it's, the game starts off, you are in a city and it's being besieged by goblins. And right as the goblins are about to make their final push, the skies open up and sucks everyone into a void. And it has probably the best introduction. Do yourself a favor and just go to YouTube and YouTube Dungeons and Dragons Warriors of the Eternal Sun and watch that video. It is very quality, early 90s intro. The graphics are on point and they even like zoom in on the goblins eyes and the humans eyes as the city gets sucked up into the void and it shakes them like just the image of their eyes so it looks like there's a situation going it's on it's very good it's it's extremely good and the music is like on point so uh the city gets settled into this new area where there's an eternal sun hence the name warriors of the eternal sun and uh there the goblins are gone and the duke tells the four player characters that you are going to be playing to go and invest investigate the world and find allies because that's what they need and everyone else in the city is too busy protecting the city to help you so when i played it i just picked the standard party which included a fighter a cleric a mage and a thief and i just walked north until something happened nice and i walked north for quite some time and eventually encountered these tiny little wormling dragons and i fought them and almost died well the fighter almost died so then after the combat that we successfully won i said we should rest because my fighter is almost dead and so then it counted up the hours while i was resting one two three four five six seven eight and it said okay you've rememorized your spells do you want to continue to rest until everyone is healed and i said sure and then it counted up to 56 hours talk about a long rest yeah it was a very long rest for the game's sake it does it does count exponentially so it goes from like it goes like 8 16 36 and like it just goes up very quickly to 56 but it did get to 56 hours and i was just thinking what did they do for 56 hours like that guy he's just complaining about his finger being injured yeah they're just hanging out camping for like a week well less than a week a work week yeah <laughs> um oh it's like when we were playing starfinder and you you would be like oh it takes you like uh six days to get back to absalom station <laughs> oh that's true that's true the um and after those 56 hours the party was ready to adventure again now if you enjoy old gold box D games but you wanted them to be a little more streamlined i actually recommend dungeons uh dungeon dragons warriors of the eternal sun it's a great way to be exposed to the D franchise and also play in a role-playing game that's not super overly complicated like using a gold box D game where you have to push random keys and hope they do something the music the music is also is is incredible it is not the music that i would associate with dungeon and dragons but is now <laughs> the best part is the one of the best parts of the game is the back of the box the box art is great it's like very pulp fantasy artwork and the back it the description goes the chill of danger the sweat of combat the rush of discovery it's dynamite D D on sega genesis alive with sizzling 
color, graphics, and sound. I am very happy that copywriter wrote the way they wrote. I would never necessarily describe color as sizzling, but they did. So yeah, so if you are interested in a, a role-playing game that is kind of like, I would say, a little more nuanced than Shining Force on the Sega Genesis, which has very few role-playing games, uh, check out Dungeons & Dragons Warriors of the Eternal Sun. Because when you think role-playing, you generally think SNES and JRPGs. Well, next week you can play Ball Blazer for the Atari 8-bit system, either the 400 or the 800. Cool. Will do. Seth had me play Side Pocket, which was released for a variety of systems starting back in 1986, but I played the 1993 Super Nintendo version. Side Pocket is a game by Data East, which they make very clear when you start the game. A voice says, Data East. And then another voice is like, Side Pocket. There's a lot of like voice acting in the, just the start of the game. In the game, you play pool. You're like a guy who is wearing like a fancy suit and I think he's supposed to be at like a pool hall and there's all these like uh, kind of scantily clad women that just are just there like there's just images of them when you start the game they're not like near you like you don't like see your guy playing pool you kind of like see a little animation of him using the pool cue but there's like no one else around you you're like by yourself but yeah you play a game of pool uh, your job is to achieve the predetermined score before running out of lives or better than the predetermined score and lives are counted by the number of scratches that a player has a scratch being in pool when you fail to get the ball into the pocket so if you hit the cue ball and you either miss or it hits one of the billiards but they don't go into the pocket then that's a scratch and then you would lose a life i had a fun time honestly i'm bad at pool in general so playing virtual version of pool doesn't really make it any better but i do have kind of a soft spot for video game versions of pool uh, mostly because i played a very similar game for the nes called lunar pool when i was younger uh lunar pool being slightly cooler because it has a variety of tables that you can go to that are like fun shaped this is just a very boring plain billiards table for side pocket but side pocket does have a little bit of a nicer aesthetic and also the physics are a bit uh, more realistic to pool in my opinion than lunar pool uh so i did have a good time uh but pool's a pretty straightforward game so i don't really have too much to contribute uh, in terms of and my other thoughts on it does it hold up yeah i mean it's pool i'm sure there are better versions of pool out there that you can play if you want to play video game version of pool but uh this is not a bad version uh, so if you find a copy or want to play it, give it a shot. I think it actually just came out on Switch Online. It did. It did just come out on Switch Online. In fact, not only did it come out on Switch Online for the SNES, it came out on Switch Online for the Super Famicom. Yeah. So if you want to play the game, uh, it's it's widely available uh, if you have a Switch. Um, so give it a shot. Next week, Seth, I want you to play Mighty Final Fight for the original Nintendo. All right. Sounds good. So if you want to listen to more episodes, find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, if you want to learn more about us, uh, you can visit our website, ClassicGamingBrothers.com, or you can also follow us on social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch, all at Classic Gaming Brothers and Twitter at CG Brothers Pod. We please give us the ratings, reviews, comments, emails. It's all good. Email us at Classic Gaming brothers at gmail.com and zach am i missing anything else don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been zach and i've been seth we've been the classic gaming brothers that's, that's right, right. <laughs>